0: I want us to turn in our Bibles to Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21. My middle son was a good soccer player, and while watching him play, I learned a little about the game. And one thing I know is that a winning shot requires a good follow-through. If you swing at the ball and stop at the point of impact, the shot loses its power. You won't get it past the goalie. But if your leg goes all the way through, the ball will fly off your foot into the back of the net. A winning shot requires a strong follow-through. This is where the nation of Israel failed. They lacked a good follow-through. When Joshua led them into the promised land, God's instructions were clear. They were to drive out the Canaanites, and we talked about why last week. They were to take possession of every square inch of the land that God had given them. They got off to a good start, but they had a poor follow-through. They followed God halfway. They would take a little bit of the land, then they would compromise with the enemy. And this is what happens in our Christian lives. God gives us a victory over the sin in our lives. But rather than let him go on and uproot the causes of that sin... So often we fail to follow through. We compromise with the sin and we try to coexist with that sin rather than drive it out completely. We end up with too much of the world to be happy in God and enough of God not to be happy in the world. We follow God halfway and end up defeated. Well, Moses brought Israel out of Egypt in 1445 B.C. The Hebrews wandered in the desert for 40 years, and Joshua brought them into the Promised Land in 1405 B.C. And for the next 350 years, the nation of Israel was governed by a series of 14 different judges. Now, when I say judge, realize these were not men who sat in a court of law and handed down legal decisions. I'm not talking about that kind of judge. These were men and women of action. They rallied God's people together and led them into battle against their enemies. They brought about God's judgment. Some of the more famous judges were Deborah, a woman, Gideon, a farmer turned warrior, Jephthah, the man who made the rash vow, Samson, the biblical strong man, and the prophet Samuel, the last of the judges. These were almighty people of faith. And so get your sheets out. First thing we're going to write down in that first blank is the word judges, judges. And how are we going to remember judges? Judges. We're going to show our muscles like Samson. And we're going to muscle up like Samson when he was anointed by the Spirit of God. So muscles, judges. And then I want you to write down three judges. Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. Imagine the faith that Gideon needed to do the will of God. When he was called, the people of Israel were in a terrible situation. The people of Israel were up against a formidable foe. When Gideon was called on, the people of Israel, when he called the people of Israel to join his army to go into battle, 32,000 men responded. Gideon had an army of 32,000 men to fight the Midianites, who numbered four hundred—I'm sorry, one hundred and thirty-five thousand. I'll get my numbers right here tonight. So from the outset, it was thirty-two thousand against one hundred and thirty-five thousand. Literally, four to one—that was the beginning odds. But God told Gideon that he had too many soldiers. Can you believe it? Thirty-two thousand against one hundred and thirty-five thousand. Gideon got too many. Send the ones home that don't really want to fight. Suddenly, Gideon's army shrunk to 10,000. Now he's outnumbered 13 to 1. But this was still too many for God. God tells him to take the men down to the spring and have them drink. Now, a good soldier drops to his knees, cups his hands, and brings the water to his mouth while he's still looking around, alert for the enemy. He's aware of his surroundings whereas a careless soldier falls on his face and laps up water like a dog. Well, Gideon was relieved that only 300 of his men fell on their face and lapped up the water. But that's who God tells him to keep. Send the others home, Gideon. Keep the sloppy soldiers. Now Gideon's army is outnumbered 450 to 1, And he's got 300 sloppy soldiers. Here's what God is doing. When Gideon wins this battle, it won't be because of his great army. He won't be able to take credit for the victory. It'll be obvious to everyone that the glory belongs to God. And this is why at times God stacks the odds against you. God sees to it that we're outnumbered. So that when the victory's won, he alone gets the credit and the glory. Thus, Gideon surprised the mighty enemy with his little army, and God gave him the victory. Samson's also an interesting character. The Spirit of God would come upon Samson and give him extraordinary strength. Once he picked up the jawbone of a donkey and used it to kill 1,000 Philistines all by himself. He was God's strong man. But though Samson was strong physically, he compromised spiritually. You see, he had a weakness for the ladies. Samson was a he-man with a she-problem. Samson ended up living with a Philistine gal named Delilah, who tricked him into breaking his vow to God. Samson was a lifelong Nazarite. He had taken a special vow. It had three parts. Drink no wine... Never cut your hair and don't touch anything that was dead. Samson was to stay away from liquor stores, barber shops, and funeral parlors. And by the way, these three institutions get plenty of traffic. People are always wanting a nip, a clip, and a rip. They want success in life so they can rest in peace. This is what makes the world go round. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John describes the spirit of this world, the lust of the flesh, the nip, the lust of the eyes, the clip, and the pride of life, the rip. The world we live in is all about physical pleasure and outward beauty and temporal success. But the Nazarite, the person who took this special vow to God, was to be a juxtaposition to the world, a contradiction to the world. His vow spoke of just the opposite. He was a walking billboard for godly values. With his abstinence, he was in essence saying that real pleasure is spiritual, not physical. With his unkept hair, he was making a statement. Real beauty is inward, not outward. And by avoiding death, he was illustrating that real success is found in eternal pursuits, not temporal preoccupations. Samson's long hair was a part of the Nazarite vow. It was a symbol of his devotion to God. Thus, when Delilah shaved his locks, God's power departed. And Samson is a warning for people in ministry today. You can compromise your commitment to God in little ways, over and over. And still, God will empower you to preach and serve. But there comes a point when you go too far, and God withdraws his power. This is what happened to Samson. He married a Philistine, yet God still used him. He slept with a prostitute, yet God still used him. He shacked up with Delilah, no less. But God still used him up until a point. For when Samson crossed the line that God had drawn, God's spirit departed. And here's the takeaway for you and me. You never know where that line has been drawn until it's been crossed. And sadly, by that point, it's too late. Be a stranger to danger. Stay as far away from that line as you can. Well, the Philistines took Samson prisoner and plucked out his eyes, which was the very thing, by the way, that had given Samson his problems. He had an eye for the ladies. In desperation, Samson repented of his sin and begged God for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon him one last time. The Philistines had placed Samson in their temple to mock him and ridicule him. They tied him up between the two supporting pillars. And with one last surge of God's power, Samson pulled down those posts, bringing down the whole temple with them. You can say that in his final performance, Samson brought down the house. Judges 16 verse 30 informs us of Samson's grand finale. So, the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. Now, throughout this period of their history, Israel repeats a cycle of behavior. You see this seven times in the book of Judges. First, the people sin and follow false gods. Second, God brings judgment, they end up in slavery to their enemies. Third, as a result of that slavery, they cry out for God's deliverance. They make supplication to God. Fourth, God raises up a judge, a Gideon or a Samson or Deborah, who brings his people salvation from their enemies, which is followed by a period of peace and serenity until that peace is interrupted again by another round caused by more sin and more slavery, and on it goes. The cycle gets repeated. Five words sum up this cycle. Understand these five words and you'll understand the book of Judges. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, serenity, Then it starts back over again when they sin. The whole period of the Judges is summed up In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and you should be there. Let's read it together. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, abandon God's law, and it's every man for himself. It's do what seems right to you. And that becomes a recipe for disaster. So write it down on your page. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And here's how we'll remember it. It's like that. We'll point to our eyes. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Judges. Muscles like Samson. Deborah, Gideon, Samson. And then everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And the period of the judges lasted 350 years, 350 years. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Right here, yep. The last of the judges was a man named Samuel. He was the most godly of all the judges. He was the last of the judges, and he was the first of the prophets. Samuel has been called the prophet of prayer. Samuel's mother dedicated him to God before he was born. After she nursed him, she took Samuel to the tabernacle and put him in the care of Eli the priest. Even at a young age, God spoke to Samuel. In fact, one night he heard a voice, Samuel, Samuel. He heard it twice, and he thought it was Eli. The old priest realized that God was speaking to the boy. The third time Samuel heard the voice, he followed Eli's instructions and he answered, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. God goes on to reveal to Samuel that he will judge the family of Eli. The priest's sons were corrupt. They were greedy. They were lustful. They were actually holding orgies in the tabernacle. Can you believe it? The high priest's sons were sinning against God, but worse, Eli was ignoring their actions. And in First Samuel chapter three, verse 13, God says of Eli, "His sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Pay attention, parents, especially you dads. Every father has the responsibility to discipline his kids. When it's needed. Well, judgment comes to the house of Eli when the Philistines attack Israel. The Israelites didn't have much of a relationship with God, so they trusted in the things of God rather than in God himself. They took the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle with them into battle. And when the Ark passed through the camp, the Bible tells us that the Hebrews let out a shout. Their trust was in the Ark. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was that golden box that held the stone tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. The Ark was God's throne in the tabernacle. It represented His presence. The Hebrews thought that they could win the battle because the Ark was with them. They trusted in the Ark and not God. And sometimes we make the same mistake. We trust in the things of God rather than in God Himself. You see religious folks today who trust in their prayer beads or in a cross they wear around their neck rather than in the Savior who died on the cross. Always remember, representations of God are no substitute for God himself. And the Israelites find this out the hard way. Their army gets slaughtered by the Philistines. Eli and his sons are killed and the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the enemy. And what happened to the Ark is a rather funny story. The Philistines take the Ark as spoils of the battle and they display it in the temple of their god, Dagon, the half-man, half-fish idol. But each morning, the statue of Dagon is found lying prostrate before the Ark of God. In addition, Wherever the Philistines took the ark, the people were struck by a plague of tumors, literally hemorrhoids, a terrible, terrible ordeal. This led to the development of something you may like today, Philistine H. But no one could withstand the pain, so they sent the ark back to Israel. The incident, though, had one lasting effect on God's people. Now they want an earthly king to rule over them. See, God wanted to be Israel's king. He wanted to rule the nation directly and personally. But the Hebrews wanted a physical throne, a leader they could see. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, they ask, Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. They said what every high school student has uttered at some point in their life. Well, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? In 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 9, God warns the Hebrew people that a king will oppress them and treat them harshly. And we know from history that God was right. Of the 42 kings who ruled over God's people Israel, only 9 will receive any kind of positive approval rating from God. It's a true saying. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, write down on your paper: the people want a king, and here's how we'll remember it: like this, we'll put a crown on our head. People want a king, so we've got judges, Deborah, Gideon, and Samson, and then we've got uh, we've got everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And then we've got the people who want a king. Okay? Oh, yeah, 350 years. Judges. Now, the first king of Israel was everything the people thought they wanted in a king. Saul was handsome. He was strong. He was taller than anyone else in the nation. Whenever the crowd got together, Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. You could always spot him. But the problem with Saul was that he was all show and no substance. He was impressive physically, but he lacked the strength of character needed to follow God and lead God's people. He was impulsive and insecure. Spiritually speaking, Saul was a little man. He was tall in stature, but he was small in faith. And rather than trust God, he relied on his own abilities. And when those abilities proved inadequate, he would shrink from the challenge. Worst of all, Saul was an externally motivated person. Write that down. An externally motivated person. In other words, he lived for outside forces and outside stimulus. He lived to please people. Circumstances and opinions dictated his behavior. Saul lacked inner conviction. And thus, when Saul defeated the Amalekites, God told him to take no spoils from the victory, and yet Saul disobeyed. He put convenience above conviction. He was externally motivated, and this angered God. In response to Saul's actions, God states in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 11, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul tries to excuse his disobedience by sacrificing a few sheep to God, but the prophet Samuel corrects him, to obey is better than sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul remained king over Israel for 30 more years, but God removed his blessing from Saul's life. And God chose a new king. A man after God's own heart. You know what his name was? It was David. It was David, a simple shepherd boy. You know, as far as physical appearance and natural prowess were concerned, David was the very opposite of Saul. He was just a kid when God selected him to be king. God passed on his older brothers and selected the run of the litter, the baby. Samuel took a ram's horn full of oil and he poured it over the head to anoint David as king. As God told Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. For the Lord does not look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here's a huge lesson for you and me. We tend to evaluate a person based on their appearance or their size or the clothes that they wear. And we draw conclusions about that person, but when God sizes up a person, He always puts the measuring tape around the person's heart. Ironically, Saul looked the part of a king, but ended up having a peasant's heart, whereas David looked like a peasant, yet clearly he had the heart of a king. What you see is not always what you get. David's life can be divided into three segments. 1 Samuel 16, verse 31 recounts David's rise to prominence in his flight from King Saul. In essence, David as a fugitive. 2 Samuel 1 through chapter 10 records the birth and the expansion of David's kingdom after the death of Saul, David as a fighter. And 2 Samuel 11 verse 24 recounts how David's sin threatened his kingdom. You could call it David as a failure. As a fugitive, as a fighter, and as a failure. The Bible describes David's trials, David's triumphs, and David's troubles his successes and his failures. In fact, David also talks about all three his trials, his triumphs, his troubles in the book of Psalms. David was a musician. And thus he wrote many of the Psalms, and in them he talked about his feelings, his failures, his faith. It's important for us to read the Psalms. David's story begins with his triumph over the Philistine giant named Goliath. All the Hebrew soldiers were afraid of Goliath, but David believed that God would give him the victory. Everyone else looked at Goliath and said, He's too big to hit. David took one look at Goliath and he said, The boy is too big to miss. Faith made all the difference. With a slingshot and with a stone and with a daring faith, the little shepherd boy in the Valley of Elah, there it is on the screen, toppled the Philistine giant led Israel in a mighty victory. There's Pastor Sandy in the Valley of Elah. There he is, slow motion. There he is, about to kill the giant. Oh, boy. It's a lot harder than it looks now, trust me. They all kidded me about that when we were there. But you know what I told them? I said, look around, you see any giants? were no giants when I left. In the wake of David's glorious victory over Goliath, he became a celebrity in the nation Israel. David's popularity among the Hebrews made Saul jealous, and Saul tried to kill David. And for the next 25 years or so, David remains on the run from King Saul. On two occasions, David had an opportunity to kill his tormentor, Saul. Though it would have been convenient for him to rid himself of his enemy, David respected Saul's position as king. Even though he didn't appreciate his character, he appreciated his position. And he refused to take matters into his own hands. He believed that God would deliver him in due time. When David ultimately became king, he consolidated, then began to expand his kingdom. He made Jerusalem his capital city, and he brought the sacred ark to Jerusalem from Shiloh. David wanted to build a temple, a house to God, but God declined his offer. God told David that because he was a man of war, it was not for him to build a place of peace. His son Solomon would build the temple. But instead of David building God a house, God promises to build David a house a dynasty, a dynasty of kings, a house of kings. And David's descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever, according to God's promise. The covenant, the promise that God made to David is another foundational portion of Scripture. We call it the Davidic covenant. God promised David a son who would sit on his throne forever. He would be a king eternal king who would reign over an eternal kingdom. The Hebrews called this future ruler the Messiah, which means the anointed one. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And this is why Matthew and Luke provide for us Jesus' genealogy, and, and they trace him all the way back to David. They want to make sure that you realize that Jesus is the promise of the Davidic covenant. He is the son of David. Under David's reign, God turned Israel into a world superpower. Every time King David and his army went out to battle, Israel returned victorious. Sadly, David's problems came from within rather than from without. One spring, when his army had gone to battle, David stayed behind. He felt he deserved a little R&R. But here's where you need to beware. When you're in the battle, when you're facing challenging circumstances, your on guard, you're vigilant, it's in times of ease that you drop your guard and you become vulnerable to temptation. Always remember, Satan never takes a vacation. He never takes a day off. Always beware of his snares. One night, David was lounging on the rooftop in his palace, no doubt taking pride in all his accomplishments, when suddenly he noticed off in the distance, on top of one of the rooftops below him, he noticed a beautiful lady bathing naked in the moonlight. Rather than turn his head, he took a look, and then another look. Soon he wanted to meet this woman, One thing leads to another, and by the end of the night, David and Bathsheba have committed adultery. I'm sure when Bathsheba left the king's palace the next morning, David thought it was all over. Oh, but it wasn't. It was just beginning. Bathsheba was pregnant. Oh, how we need to be careful. Please realize it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation but only one moment of indiscretion to tear it all down. We need to be constantly on guard against temptation. Don't let your thoughts run wild. Keep your mind under control. The consequences of David's sin may have been less tragic had he confessed quickly and asked for God's forgiveness, but instead he tried to cover up his sin. David arranged with his general Joab to move Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front lines. Uriah dies in battle, and David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. David thought no one would ever know the truth, that he had fooled everyone, but he didn't fool God. And the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to expose David and to call him to repentance. In Psalm 51, we find David's response. He says, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, God, have I sinned. God had been so good to David, yet he had sinned against David's wife. David had sinned against his wife. He would sinned against his kids, against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against the nation. But you know what overwhelmed David the most? Was the fact that he had let God down. That he sinned against God, against you, and you only have I sinned, he said. David's sin set in motion a series of events that almost toppled his kingdom twice. Two of his sons, Absalom and Adonijah, became so disillusioned with their father's leadership that they led revolts against his government. David's sin literally tears his family apart. Think it through. King David paid a high price for one night of pleasure. Always remember the truthful adage, the cost of sin is always more than advertised. David's son Solomon became the third king of Israel. And shortly after taking the throne, God came to Solomon with an interesting proposition. The Almighty told Solomon that he would grant him one request. Whatever he asked for, God would give him. If God told you he would grant you one request, what would it be? Riches? Long life? Victory over your enemies? Solomon asked for wisdom to lead, to lead well. And God was so impressed with his wise request that he also granted him riches and long life and victories over his enemies. Solomon became the wisest and wealthiest man to ever live. People came from all over the world to witness his greatness. Solomon authored three books of the Bible, books of wisdom, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, all a treasure house of wisdom. Solomon also built the temple, the place in the Old Testament where men were to come and worship God. The temple took the place of the tabernacle and was the center of Israel's national life for 400 years. 1 Kings 5 and 6, 2 Chronicles 2 through 7 describe the construction and the dedication of the temple. And I love what Solomon says about God in the temple at its dedication, only its dedication day. 1 Kings 8 verse 27 tells us, Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Seems sort of a strange thing to say after you've built this glorious temple. And yet Solomon knew that God is immense, that He fills up the heavens, that you can't contain Him in a building. People today walk by a church and they think, oh, God lives in this building. This is God's house. No, it's not. The whole world is God's house. He meets us at special times and in special places for sure, but the entire universe belongs to God. He can meet us anywhere. You know, whenever we try to box God in or confine him to something man made, we make a huge mistake. God is boundless, He moves where and when He pleases. Well, Solomon started out a wise and godly person, but later in his life, he compromised his commitment to God. Deuteronomy 17 had prohibited the king from taking multiple wives. Talk about breaking a commandment. Solomon ignored God's law and took 700 wives and 300 concubines. As if that's not mind-boggling, that's a 1,000 mother-in-law's. We're talking an unrivaled harem. And the problem was that most of Solomon's wives were foreigners. That means they brought to Israel their false gods and their idols. Solomon was the first king to bring idolatry into the nation Israel. And so here I want you to write down your page, United Kingdom. United Kingdom. The kingdom was one. The first king was Saul, and Saul had no heart for God, no heart for God, an ex. The second king was David. David was a man after God's own heart. He had a whole heart for God. And then the third king was Solomon. He had a half heart for God. He started out well, but he finished in idolatry, had a half-heart. Saul had no heart. David had a whole heart. Solomon had a half-heart. David reigned for 40 years. I'm sorry, Saul reigned for 40 years. David reigned for 40 years. And Solomon reigned for 40 years. 40, 40, 40. So we got judges. we got everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We've got the people want a king. We've got united kingdom. Saul has no heart. David has a whole heart. Solomon has a half heart. And then we've got 40, 40, 40. Also write down Davidic covenant. God makes a promise to David. He's going to build him a house, Davidic covenant, and it leads to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the Messiah. And here's how we're going to remember that. We're going to take the ram's horn of Samuel, and we're going to pour it out on the Messiah's head, king's head. Messiah means anointed. Messiah. Now, Solomon's son Rehoboam was a greedy king who raised the people's taxes. Can you imagine such a thing? Sadly, you can. And this caused a split in his kingdom. The northern ten tribes broke off from the southern two tribes. Two Hebrew kingdoms formed. The northern tribes became known as Israel. Their capital city was Samaria. While the southern tribes were called Judah, their capital remained Jerusalem. Now we have two Hebrew kingdoms. Rehoboam remained king of Judah, and a man named Jeroboam ruled in Israel, in Samaria. But this Jeroboam felt that he had a problem. You see, the law of Moses required all Hebrews to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jeroboam feared that if his northern Israelites went to Jerusalem three times a year, they'd eventually pledge their loyalty to his rival, King Rehoboam. Jeroboam's solution was to establish a rival religion within his own borders. And so he constructed Golden calves in the towns of Bethel in the north of the northern kingdom, and I'm sorry, Bethel in the south of the northern kingdom, and Dan in the north of the northern kingdom. He constructed golden calves in these two cities, Bethel and Dan. And if you asked Jeroboam, he would have denied that his calves were idols. They were probably similar to what Aaron had made while Moses was on top of Mount Sinai. They weren't substitutes for God. They were representatives of God. Now follow with me. This is important. Perhaps they were modeled after the living creatures or the angels that surround God's throne in Revelation chapter 4. You remember one of the four faces of the living creatures is that of a calf, They were probably representations of angels. Yet, despite what Jeroboam may have attended, God saw them as idols. They may not have been a violation of the first command, no other gods, but they surely violated the second commandment, no graven images in our worship. Jeroboam's sin was subtle, he wasn't intentionally introducing a new god. He wanted his people to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, just not in the way that Yahweh wanted to be worshipped. Realize, if you really love someone, you'll want to love them in the way they want and need to be loved, not just in the way that's convenient for you. This is the mistake that people make with God today. Oh, ask them if they worship God, and they'll say, yes, of course. But they only worship him in ways that are comfortable and easy for them. And this isn't true worship. In fact, this sinks into idolatry. See, Jeroboam worshiped Yahweh, but in his own way. He made the golden calves, and he commissioned his own priesthood, and his own sacrifices, and his own feast days. It ended up a full-scale substitute for the true worship of God. And it eventually led to idolatry. And most importantly, it angered the true God in heaven. Here's the lesson for us. God not only wants to be worshipped, he wants to be worshipped in the way he wants to be worshipped. Not just in a way that's convenient for us. Over the next 200 years, 19 kings ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was said of each one of those kings... He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. None of Israel's 19 kings faithfully followed the Lord. They followed Jeroboam. And the worst of the bunch was the wicked king Ahab, who ruled Israel for 21 years from 874 to 853 B.C., Ahab married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. Please don't name your daughter Jezebel. Oh, my. He married Jezebel, who imported her foreign religion. She further polluted the northern kingdom with the evils of Baal worship. It was the 450 prophets of the Phoenician idol Baal who Elijah challenged on Mount Carmel. Elijah throws down the gauntlet in 1 Kings 18, verse 24. He says, you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of my Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Jezebel's prophets cried all day to their bell, and not a single spark of fire. Finally, it was Elijah's turn. He drenched the sacrifice in the altar with gallons of water, and then he prayed a simple prayer. God sent fire from heaven that burned up the sacrifice and the wet altar alike. And the people of Israel fell on their faces and shouted, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Elijah grabbed the prophets of Baal and slayed them all on the spot. In the years following, over and over, the kings of Israel would rebel against God. And God would raise up prophets to speak to these rulers and call them to repentance. Elijah and Elisha and Hosea and Amos were all prophets sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. Sadly, their warnings all fell on deaf ears. The kings of Israel followed in the ways of Jeroboam. And in 722 B.C., God raised up the Assyrian army to come Around the Mediterranean or the Mesopotamian uh, Mesopotamian region, and slaughter the nation of Israel. The Assyrians sacked the capital of Samaria and scattered the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, the spiritual condition of the southern kingdom of Judah fared a little bit better than their northern sister. Of the twenty kings who reigned over Judah, eight received a good report. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah were godly kings. Jehoshaphat was the king with the strange battle plan. You remember, he went to war with the musicians in front of the soldiers. How would you like that to go into battle and have little Matt and Allie out there in front of the army? My, oh, my. Second Chronicles 20 records that when they went out singing and praising God, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. It so confused the enemy that Judah won the battle. The story teaches us the importance of praise and worship in spiritual battles. King Hezekiah was a friend of the prophet Isaiah. And after the Assyrians had sacked Samaria, Their army camped outside Jerusalem and demanded that Hezekiah surrender. You remember Hezekiah prayed and God sent an angel that night who killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. It's interesting that in Isaiah 8, the prophet identifies Judah's angelic avenger. He calls him Emmanuel. That's the name the angel gave Jesus at his birth. Here's a thought for you. The babe born in Bethlehem had been here before. That babe had already been to battle. The mighty warrior who slaughtered the Assyrian army became vulnerable and dependent on the care of peasant parents. Now you can appreciate Jesus' humility. That was Hezekiah and Isaiah. Another king, Josiah, ruled in Judah from 641 to 609 B.C. This was the boy king. He took the throne at the age of eight. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, had been a very wicked king. Manasseh had destroyed the copies of the Mosaic law and had brought idols into the temple's holy places. It was during Josiah's reign that a copy of the law was rediscovered. The king not only read the law, but he was determined to obey what he had read. And Josiah became the catalyst for a spiritual revival in the land of Judah. God also sent prophets to the southern kingdom. Isaiah, Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all books of your Bible. And perhaps the greatest prophet of all, Jeremiah. But they weren't enough. The Jews forsook the Lord and pursued foreign gods. They also worshipped idols. And finally, God brought judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, here's what I want you to write down on your paper here uh, Kingdom splits. Kingdom splits. And what we're going to do is we're going to tear a sheet of paper. Ready? We're going to tear a piece of paper. Kingdom splits. Northern tribes, Israel. Southern tribes, Judah. Prophets act as God's mouthpiece. And what do the prophets say? Shape up or ship out. That's what the prophets say. We'll talk about, have a megaphone there. And so we got judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. 350 years, the people want a king, united kingdom, Saul has no heart, David has a whole heart, Solomon has a half heart, Davidic covenant, the Messiah, pour out that oil on top of our head, kingdom splits, prophets say, shape up or ship out, all right? And so God raised up the Babylonian empire in King Nebuchadnezzar to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. Three times the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom. In 605 B.C., in 597, and in 586 B.C. And each time the invaders took back to Babylon certain important Jews. In 605 B.C., Daniel and his friends We're taken to Babylon, so you want to write Daniel in. And then in 597 B.C., they deport the prophet, anybody? Ezekiel can write his name in. While in Babylon, Daniel and Ezekiel encouraged the exiled Jews. Daniel stood for God in the midst of a pagan society. Ezekiel raised the hopes of the Jews in captivity with visions of their return to the land. Finally, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians sacked the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, and the remaining Jews were taken back to Babylon to live in exile. It was a sad end to a story filled with promise and opportunity. 900 years earlier, Moses had delivered the people from bondage, and Joshua had led them into the land that God had promised them. Now they've lost their land. And they are, they've ended up right back into bondage, right back from where they came. You know, it's been said, the Jews wanted to live like idolaters, so God let them live with the idolaters. Idolatry began with Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. Now the Hebrews are taken captive to the land of Babel, Babylon, the hotbed of paganism and idolatry, right back where they started. And so I want you to write down on your your paper, Israel is scattered. The northern kingdom was scattered by the Assyrians. Israel is scattered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., the fall of Samaria. So Israel scattered by the Assyrians, 722 B.C., whereas Judah is taken in exile. We're going to bound our wrists together like we're being captive. So Judah is exiled to Babylon in 586 BC. Daniel, Ezekiel, and they remain in Babylon for 70 years. It's a tragic story, but it's not the end of the story, for God remains faithful. He still has a plan for his people. Every time God's people crash and burn, God comes to their rescue with a covenant, with new terms and new promises. And even in a hopeless Babylon, the Lord begins to reveal pieces of a glorious new covenant.